bringing hope to many around the globe, transforming lives into legacies. Live in Word with Pastor Mensah Otobil. And now, today's Word. Well, I am continuing my teaching on self-government. I believe that the level of effectiveness of any individual, of a group, of a family, of a company, of a nation, is determined by the quality of leadership that is present in that person or group. Leadership is not just a position, it is a function. It's not a place where we occupy, it is something that we do. One of the biggest challenges when it comes to leadership is we reduce it only to a position, or what we call in Ghana, a post. And people seek the post of leadership and not the function of leadership. Leadership can be exercised at various levels, personally, personal leadership, and then public leadership. And we've come to learn throughout our series that before we lead other people, we must learn first to lead ourselves. Most leadership books would teach us how to manage our time, how to build teams, how to organize. But the truth is, leadership is more than that. It is personal. And that's what we've been looking at. We are talking about personal leadership, the art of self-government. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. When you're not able to govern yourself, you become open to all forms of attack. Let's go back to the passage we started with uh, Two weeks ago, started when we're talking about self-government in the part two. First Timothy chapter three, verses one to seven. First Timothy chapter three, verses one to seven. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. When you desire the position, you are desiring work. The position brings work, not glory. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his ch children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. And we stated that leadership starts from within and extends out. Leadership does not start 
from outside us, it starts from within us and then extends out of us. And in talking about self-government, I said that there are four important areas of our lives that we must learn to govern. And we talked about the first two. First, we must learn to govern our hearts. And secondly, we must learn to govern our thoughts. Govern our hearts. Govern our thoughts. And we refer to Psalm 16, verse 5 to 8, which says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines are falling to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Verse 7, I'll bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. We have to learn to govern our heart so our heart speaks to us properly in the night seasons of life. And I said uh, when I was dealing with this that there are seasons in your life when things don't seem to be going right. Everything seems to be wrong. And in that moment, you can be destabilized. Uh, your, your true leadership is seen at the time of great adversity. It has been said that great leaders emerge from times of great adversity. Think of the great leaders who have emerged in human history. We can't go too far. You go to the Second World War, you think of somebody like Winston Churchill of Great Britain. He came at a time of great crisis in Britain when Hitler and his armies were literally running all over Europe and previous prime ministers couldn't stand it, but Churchill was elected prime minister and he came up and was able to mobilize the people to victory, to resist the Nazi Germany. It was a time of crisis. Mahatma Gandhi came at a time of great crisis when India was fighting for great liberation from Britain and Gandhi stood up with uh, positive action or passive resistance to oppression and galvanized the people to liberty. In our own country, we had Kwame Nkrumah rising up at the time of great crisis when we were seeking for independence and, and so on. When you look at human history, you realize that at the time of uncertainty, when people are perplexed and people are giving up and people are discouraged, that is when leadership rises up. And so many times, you, the time when you are the most vulnerable, when life is so hard against you, that is when your leadership rises up. We can think of Nelson Mandela. How did he rise in leadership? Not in comfort, but the time of great crisis. Martin Luther King, in the time of great crisis, your leadership will also rise at the time of great crisis. So when things are going rough for you, it's a time for you to be a leader. I have a sense that somebody's leadership is about to emerge and you are about to take charge of your life and rise up as a leader. You must govern your heart, govern your heart. I, I remember uh, something I read about uh, Mandela. Um, 
years ago. I was just I was in a plane actually, of all places, and reading uh, airline magazine. And this journalist had travelled with Mandela uh, on a flight, uh, and and he said when they were travelling on this flight, uh, there was huge turbulence. Huge turbulence. I mean, the plane was going up and down. If you've been in some of those flights, especially if the plane is very small, uh, it looks like this is the day the Lord has made. And you must not rejoice and be glad in it. It looks like a bad thing is about to happen. And so everybody is, you know, perplexed and people are calling on whomever they worship. At that time, everybody calls Jesus. You know, everybody's calling Jesus and, 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 and everybody's worried. And this journalist says he looks at Mandela and he, he's, he's just calm as if nothing is happening. He's sitting very calm in the plane. And he's perplexed. He's wondering, doesn't this guy know? What is happening? Maybe he's been in prison for too long. He's, he has no fear. But he says at that time, you know, he was perplexed. Everybody was perplexed. And finally the plane landed. And they all got out. And when they all got out, he said Mandela turned, after they got out from the plane, he turned back, looked at the flight and said, boy, that was scary. <laughs> but what did he do? He governed his heart. He governed his heart. In a time of crisis, there are people who don't govern their heart. They scream, oh, oh, I'm about to die. This is the end of me. True leaders govern their heart. You have to learn to govern your heart. You have to learn not only to govern your heart, but to govern your thoughts. As a leader, self-government is governing your heart, governing your thoughts. I said there are four. So today, we're looking at the last two things, the third and the fourth. Govern your words. Govern your words. Human beings are blessed with the power of speech. We have the ability to use words to communicate what we feel and think to others. That power of speech can either help you or destroy you. It can give you power or it can actually take power away from us. Our words are spiritual in nature. They never die. Even when you are sorry, your words keep, keep on living. If, if, if uh, uh, somebody tells you uh, that, excuse my language, he says to you, you are a fool. And then afterwards he says, I'm sorry. Now, you would know he's sorry, but you are a fool, continues to live on. Isn't that true? And after you've, you, you, you've said, you oh, yeah, I accept your apology. I've said, okay, I've forgiven you. But you leave his presence, you say, does he really think I'm a fool? And two years later, you're thinking, he said, I'm a fool. Five years later. Why? Because the words never die. You have to be very careful of words you speak. Even when you recall them, they continue living. So you have to be a governor of your words. Our words mediate our relationships. Our words mediate our relationships. Proverbs chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pour forth foolishness. 
Anytime I read about fools and, and foolishness in the Bible, I feel very uncomfortable. It's, it's as if I'm insulting you. But I'm just reading scripture. The mouth of fools. Paul for foolishness. According to the Bible. And sometimes you have to ask yourself, am I a fool? Am I behaving foolishly? Relationships are built on words. The words we speak and the words we act out. We build trust with our words and we break hearts with our words. Anybody had a broken heart before in your life? How did it come about? Words. It's true. I'm through with you. We are breaking up. <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy. We make friends with our words and we make enemies with our words. We build our marriages with our words and we tear down our marriages with our words. Our words determine the quality of our relationship. Words mediate our relationships. If you're going to be a person who has good relationships, you have to control your words. If you don't, although you are a good, peaceful person, you make enemies all around. The psalmist put it so sharply. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Have you ever been in a situation, especially in a marriage, when you, your heart is for peace, but everything you're saying is complicating the marriage problems? Words govern or mediate our relationships. Our words set our atmospheres. Words create atmosphere. Proverbs 15 Verse 23, a man has joy by the answer of his mouth and a word spoken in due season. How good it is. Words create atmospheres. Words inspire faith. Words kill hope. If I say in this, in this auditorium, favor, 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 everybody feels excited but I can also use another word which I don't want to use in this same auditorium and you're going to feel very depressed. Now, I haven't touched you. I haven't moved you. I haven't reached out to you. All I'm doing is using words to create an atmosphere. Your words create atmosphere. When, I, when somebody screams in a packed, uh, maybe nightclub or, or a packed auditorium and say, Fire! Without anybody seeing fire, people rise up and rush out. Why? Because the word is creating an atmosphere. If he said snake, people start lifting up their legs. What's happening? Now they haven't seen anything. What's happening? Words. Words are very powerful. If I say blessing, you smile. If I use another word, you leave home wondering, was this, does pastor really love us in church? Words set our atmospheres. Our words must be carefully spoken, according to Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer. Studies how to answer. Words must be spoken deliberately, or we must study how to answer. We must learn how to speak. 
In every relationship, if you're going to be a master of that relationship, you must study how to answer. When you start a relationship with somebody, in the first few months, years, you talk, as we say in Ghana, by heart. But over time, you begin to study the person and begin to study words which are wrong triggers. And if you study it well, you stop using those words because you know when, when I say this, this is how this person is going to respond. What are you doing? You are studying to answer. As a preacher, you study to answer. If you speak words in the wrong way, you get the wrong results. I've said this uh, many times and I've used this example many times. When I was a younger preacher, uh, I wasn't as nice as I am now. I think I'm a nice guy, don't you think so? I think I'm a nice guy. Now, but I wasn't as nice as I am now. I was a very, when you are young, you know, you, you are fighting the whole world. You know, whenever you get the opportunity to speak, you want to really give it to people. So I was that kind of a preacher. I was very good. I could speak well. I could teach well, but I was too vehement. So after one of those vehement presentations, I remember uh, a brother in the group came to me and says, you know, Brother Mensah, you're a good speaker. We all enjoy you. You come with all these nice insights and this, but the way you speak, Sometimes when we live here, we, we, don't, we feel depressed. Now, it's not good for people to give you that feedback, you know. So, and, and I will never forget, he used this example. He says, when you have a grain of corn and you have chicken, that's their food. He says, when you throw the f- grain of corns at them, they will all scatter. They will run away from the food, although they want the corn. But if you gently lay the corn in front of them, they will all come and pick the corn. And I learned that yes, I may have the food, but if I don't study how to use my words, I will drive people away with my words instead of people coming close to my words. If you're going to be a leader, you have to govern your words. You have to govern your words. You have to study to use how to answer. Our words must be carefully spoken. And our words must be guided by the Lord. Our words must be guided by the Lord. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 1 says, The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The preparations of the heart belongs to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now what the writer is saying is, many times you prepare what you say, but when you answer, it doesn't correspond with what you had in your heart. Have you ever determined to say, I'm going to this meeting, I'm going to behave myself, and when I go, this is what I'm going to say, and no matter what happens, this is how I handle the meeting. And then you get to the place, you have rehearsed it, you prepared it, you open your mouth, and you're wondering, what happened to all my preparation? So the writer of Proverbs is saying, although we rehearse in our hearts what to say, the words must be submitted to God. The preparation of the heart is right. But the Lord must control our tongues. In other words, controlling our tongue is more difficult than our intentions. So, James chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. James chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. 
For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot decides. Now what do we get from this passage? The, the mature man or the mature woman is a master of words. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Now that word perfect means mature. So one of the ways of judging our maturity is in the way we speak. Now, I know there are people who say, well, I say it as it is. And there is some value in saying it as it is. It means that you don't cover the truth. But sometimes when we say, I say it as it is, we also mean that I don't take time to think through what I'm going to say. Now, if that is what you mean by I say it as it is, then it's not right. It's not right. I mean, how many husbands, if, if your wife comes to you and say, honey, how do I look? She shows you, you know, something, maybe she's got a nice hair done at the hair salon. She spent three hours at the hair salon. Say, sweetheart, how do I look? Now, you may not like it, but you will not say it as it is. You wouldn't say it looks like you just put a basket on your head. <laughs> you say, it looks nice. I like the right side, but the left one, I think you should mend it a little bit. Now, what are you doing? You, you, you are telling the truth, but you are mature. You're mature about it. You're mature about it. Now, for all you husbands who don't know how to handle the truth with maturity, I, you can tell why your, your marriage is troubling. The mature man or woman is a master of words. A leader is a master of words. If you have, you know, you, you are a father and your son comes to you and says, Daddy, I need money to go and buy new shoes. Now, you don't have money. You can say, so what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? Where should I get the money from? That's one way to say it. Or you can say, you know, son, we don't have money now, but we believe that God, the God we, we worship, is a faithful God. And what we don't have today, we are going to pray and believe God that he will make a way for us. You, have, you just told the child, I don't have money, I can't provide for you, but two different ways. A fool says, so what should I do? Does money grow from trees? But a wise man knows how to measure his word. Now, I could give political examples, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that because it's too complicated. <laughs> so, now, I want you to pay particular attention to verse 4 of James chapter 3. It says, 
Look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Now, what does that mean? Ships, the ships there represent our lives. Ships represent our lives in this passage. He says, look at the ships, look at your life. Or look at your family, or look at the circumstance you're dealing with. Look at your life. And he says two things about the ship. First, it says it is driven by winds. It is driven by fierce winds. Now, what does that mean? It talks about circumstances beyond control. The pilot of the ship has no control control over the weather. So the ship has things driving it. The winds, fears coming against it. And many times in our lives, there are fierce winds coming against us. But James is saying that what determines the direction of the ship is not the fierce winds, but he says something else determines it. He says that ship is turned by a rudder. Turned by a rudder. Representing our tongue or our words. Whichever way the pilot determines. So what the writer is saying is, what really directs the ship is not the wind, it's the rudder. So what is moving my life is not the fierce circumstances around me, it's how I use my words. That's what he's saying. So you can have fierce winds coming against you, pressure coming against you, all kinds of activities, all kinds of wrong things coming against you. But if you learn to use your words well, you can turn it against where the wind is leading you. The writer of James is telling us, if we master our tongue and our words, we will be able to control the fierce winds of life. Every leader is going to come against fierce winds. It could be at a personal level, private level, corporate level, church level, pressure. But you can turn your life differently. So what lessons do we learn? That we must use words to resist the pressure of life's winds. Thank you for listening to Living Word. To interact with Pastor Mensah Otebil, like his page on Facebook. Follow him on Twitter at Mensah Otebil. Email otebil at centralgospel.com or call plus 233-302-688-000.